practice headquarters in the nation's capital. Welcome to Higher Ed Now, a podcast on pivotal issues, trends, and leadership in higher education. I'm Doug Spry. Today's guest, Jonathan Marks, has been an educator for almost a quarter century. He's a professor and chair of politics and international relations at Ursinus College. He has published on modern and contemporary political philosophy in journals like the American Political Science Review, the Journal of American Political Science, and the Review of Politics. Professor Marx has also written on higher education and other matters for Inside Higher Ed, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Commentary Magazine, The Washington Examiner, The Bulwark, The American Conservative, and The Wall Street Journal, among others. My ACTA colleague, Bradley Jackson, our Vice President of Public Policy, sat down for an interview with Professor Marks to talk about civic education, free expression on college campuses, and much more. Jonathan Marks, welcome to Higher Ed Now. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me. Good to see you, Brad. Yeah, we're really, really excited to have you here today to talk about higher education, uh, free speech on campus, civic education, and all the uh, things that you've been studying and thinking so much about over the years. Uh, But before jumping into some of those contemporary topics, I wanted to introduce our audience to you a little bit more, uh, give them some of your background. Uh, And I thought we could start with the time that you spent at the University of Chicago. Uh, You got both your bachelor's and your master's and your PhD at the University of Chicago. And uh, here at ACTA, we've always been a big fan of the quality of education that it's possible to get in Chicago. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your experience there and what that education meant to you. Well, you know, the the real lifers also attend the University of Chicago Lab School K through 12. So I can't can't regard myself as as a full knower of the University of Chicago. But, uh, you know, the University of Chicago was a place where I learned to take books really seriously that pervades the university. I think it pervades university still. Uh, my son um, attends there. And it's still the case that, you know, you take a common core class in social sciences, and there's a pretty good chance you're going to end up reading John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, that kind of thing. And it was also at the University of Chicago where I got to meet Alan Bloom. I had been a philosophy major at the time. In fact, I finished as a philosophy major, and that was a wonderful department to study in. But it was the case in philosophy, as in lots of other places in the university, that work was fairly specialized. So a lot of what you ended up talking about related to some fundamental question, say, what's the basis for morality, but was five or six levels removed, you know, what what is contemporary philosopher X's take in this piece of the argument about that question? I learned from Bloom that uh, though it's it's good to know one thing or one thinker, you can also refresh yourself at the well uh, of really fundamental questions. And you were at Chicago during a time, at, you know, as you allude to, when Alan Bloom was there, and so many other faculty members who have uh, written classic books and are are well-beloved. Do you have any other uh, faculty that uh, you studied with that were particularly influential on you? Well, I studied closely with Nathan Tarkov, um, who is, I think, uh, close to retirement at the University of Chicago, but he still teaches there. Just a a wonderful, careful reader of books. Um, He paired very nicely with Bloom, who certainly was was good with the details, but was you know, so, something of a showman. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he really was was wonderful at drawing in undergraduates. Nathan Tarkov was an award-winning undergraduate instructor. He did win the Quantrell Award, but it was often quite hard to figure out what he thought about things. He really mm. had you into the details of a text such that, in some ways, he seemed to disappear. So that would be another instructor, um, Ralph Lerner, from who I took a lot of classes in American political thought. Uh, when I had to teach American political thought at Michigan State, those were some classes I was pretty glad um, that I had taken. And I studied with uh, Carl Weintraub, a terrific cultural historian. He, too, was a very careful reader of texts, but he, he was a historian, which meant that he took really seriously the idea that what you were trying to get out of reading a text was the beauty of of particulars in a lot of ways. So he understood that different cultures are addressing in a lot of ways the same questions because human beings have have common experiences, but he nonetheless focused on you know the, the particular moment. Hmm. And that, that that's a useful thing to uh, learn how to do as well. Indeed. So you, you've mentioned a couple times already the importance of a carefully reading texts. Uh, and uh, you have spent uh, the majority of your career teaching at Ursinus College, a liberal arts school, and uh, mostly teaching texts. Uh, could, could you say a little bit about why it's so important to have kind of first firsthand experience with these great books rather than just reading summaries of them or reading uh, excerpts of them? Uh, why do you teach books and why do you want students to read these primary materials? Well, I, I think that in a lot of ways, liberal education is a way of correcting for our narrownesses of various kinds. Um, John Locke, great educational theorist as well as a great uh, political philosopher, says we see but in part and we know but in part, and therefore it's no wonder we conclude not right Mm -hmm. from our partial views. Um, And one of our most limiting circumstances, uh, because we don't have time machines, is that you know, we're stuck in our time. You can't just go on a trip and live someplace else, right, to find out um, what the limitations um, of the ways of thought characteristic of a time period are. Um, you find those uh, in books, um, and reading books is uh, the only way of, of conversing with the best thought available uh, of the past. And it seems obvious that it's better to uh, attempt to read them directly than to filter them through a textbook or a summary or something like that. Because w- w- wouldn't you rather converse um, with the uh, real McCoy? Mm-hmm. And what are some of the things the students can learn from these older thinkers? We we hear so often that older thinkers just have more prejudices. They have less scientific knowledge. They, they live in a benighted time, uh, and we'd be better off focusing our, on our contemporaries who know so much more than people in the past. So what are these lessons that you can learn from old books? Well, and first of all, I'd say that there's something to the objection as to say, I think that it has to be taken taken seriously. There are some kinds of studies you might want to undertake, particularly studies that involve measurement, um, for example, um, with respect to which you know probably a pretty good graduate student would know more than Aristotle will be likely to know about about the the matter at hand. But you know, it, it seems to me that I, I started out by saying there, there there are some limits to the ways of thinking characteristic of particular times and, and places. So I think that the general thing you get out of them is, is just different lenses 
with which to look at at political problems. To give you an example, when, when I teach Plato's Republic, that contains a, a famous criticism of, of music education. Music education in the broadest sense, that is anything having to do with, with the muses, so poetry and so on, but also musical education having to do with rhythm, meter, and all the rest of that. And I asked my students, I said, well, you've taken courses on politics because I often teach people in my own department. The politics part, I say, yes, you took a class in American government, right? They say, yes. And I say, well, was there a chapter on music in it? They say, no. And yet, you know, it's not hard to think of ways in which activists have associated musical changes with political changes. The 1960s are the most obvious case in which a musical revolution self-consciously goes along with a kind of political revolution. It's not just Plato, but also um, Rousseau, Nietzsche, and others who thought quite seriously about the relationship between music and politics. That's not a thought that naturally comes to mind for people studying politics today. So I think that's that that's one example of, of a thought that is at least harder, it's easier to reach via a reading of Plato or Rousseau and Nietzsche than it is, you know, from, from an American government textbook written more recently. Indeed. I would like to dive in a little bit more to a, a theme that you've uh, already raised for us, which is the kind of finitude of our individual minds. You know, we are limited by our time and place that we've lived. We're limited by our culture in some way. Uh, and this makes us fundamentally imperfect as thinkers, right? We, we need correction by others uh, in order to think. And this brings us, I think, to your first book, uh, who, which was on Rousseau, uh, which is called The Perfection and Disharmony, sorry, Perfection and Disharmony in the Thoughts of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, and it's a really fascinating book in which you make this claim that human beings are, as you put it, naturally disharmonious, but are nonetheless capable of some sort of natural perfection. So I'm wondering if you could dive into this just a little bit for us and talk about why Rousseau believes that we are naturally disharmonious and what sort of perfection we might be capable of anyway. Uh, this is especially interesting to me because Rousseau is such a complex thinker. People on the left and the right are polarized about him, meaning that I know people on the left who hate him and love him, people on the right who hate him and love him. Uh, so what is happening with Rousseau and what were you trying to do with him in this book? Well, this was uh, an expansion on my graduate thesis. Uh, so like a lot of graduate theses, it was, it was inspired by debates within the Rousseau literature. And you know, as you mentioned, uh, Rousseau is this this famously perplexing figure, sometimes uh, appearing to lend a, a certain kind of weight to you know something that looks almost like like totalitarianism. And some critics of Rousseau have blamed him in some respects for totalitarianism, then also um, as a kind of um, radical individualist, so that some people complain that Rousseau. Um, is a kind of romantic who's unmindful um, of the needs of the polity. And you find both Rousseau's, one's prominent in, for example, the social contract, and others more prominent 
in a work of his um, called The Discourse on Inequality. So I started out trying to understand a little bit better you know, how it is that Rousseau can appear to be both of those things. And I ended up getting interested in the way in which you see different figures that, that Rousseau is impressed by. The citizen um, in the social contract, for example, Roman citizenship, mm-hmm. or this kind of savage that you find um, toward the middle of the second discourse. And it seemed to me that these figures tended to, you know, oscillate between different dimensions of human experience. So, you know, in, in Rousseau's political writings, there are places in which you find, you know, a character, you know, like, like, like Fabricius, you know, who goes and serves in politics and then returns to the farm, mm-hmm. right? Isn't constantly engaged in politics, but instead swings between a political life and a life that's closer to, you know, a life of self-sufficiency. And this um, savage who, you know, is engaged in singing and dancing and all these delightful seeming romantic things uh, with his fellows, but also goes off into the woods alone and plays a not very advanced for your music lover's flute, mm-hmm. right? So it's kind of swinging back and forth, not, not experiencing both at the same time, because from Rousseau's perspective, there is always the danger that these, these two not even just two, but the, these sort of polar things that human beings want, uh, self-consciousness and reflection and absorption in the moment, individuality and sociality, or something that, that borders on collectivism, they're in danger of, of undermining each other, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that he thinks of, uh, of modern figures as, as sort of caught between, for example, a character he describes as the bourgeois who's who's simultaneously too social and too individualistic. Bloom, people already mentioned, describes this this bourgeois who I think looks a lot like us mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, who, you know, when he's thinking about others is is always thinking about himself. When he's thinking about himself, he's always thinking about others and what they think of him. Mm-hmm. So this bourgeois is kind of caught between. And I think a lot of the trouble of Rousseau's thought is, is how you have these different goods that the bourgeois wants in such a way that they're not undermining each other. And his educational work, the Emile, for example, is, is an attempt to produce somebody who's both um, a human being and a citizen who uh, has vast reserves of self-sufficiency, but still capable um, of serving the polity when needed. Indeed. And that, I think, really does get to a kind of a deep strata of your thought and career, which is the importance of getting education right in order to create the possibilities of human happiness, right? Rousseau is showing us that the human soul is very complex, has different parts. Uh, They may pull against each other in different ways. uh, And uh, if anything, we need to be aware of the complexity of human nature if we're going to have any hope or prayer of getting ourselves in order uh, and learning how to function in the world and make ourselves happy. Uh, That's one thing that you learned from um, reading Rousseau or Locke, and I I, I did have the pleasure of reading both while I was a parent, is that it's very easy to go disastrously wrong when you're trying to educate. Indeed, indeed. And Having spent so much time in education, I um, wonder if we can start talking a little bit about the ways in which 
it's possible to inculcate uh, some of these ideas into students. Uh, as a sort of a way to get into that topic, I wanted to uh, ask you about an edited volume that you worked on with uh, Christopher Lynch, uh, which is called Principle and Prudence in Western Political Thought. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, principle and prudence are two cornerstone notions uh, that help us to find our path forward in life, particularly this notion of prudence and learning how to make practically wise decisions uh, in life. Uh, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about this volume that you edited and why you thought it was important uh, to spotlight this t- these topics of principle and prudence uh, for your readers. Yeah, it was delightful to work with uh, with Chris Lynch on that volume. In a lot of ways, that volume was you know, an homage to Nathan Tarkov, who I already mentioned, who, who's written extensively on that subject. So many of his colleagues and uh, former students came together to write essays for that volume. It's more on the strength of contributors than on the strength of our editing. I think Chris would agree that it's that it's a marvelous volume covering a lot of ground. But, you know, how to put this? I, I remember that I'm going to show my my extraordinary age <laughs> and talk about the moment when George Bush, that is George Herbert Walker Bush, um, Bush one was, um, you know, the anointed successor of Ronald Reagan. Um, but the complaint about him was that he, he lacked vision somehow or another. And he, I remember, you know, he was ridiculed for saying something to the effect of, yeah, he's not so great at the vision thing, as I seem to remember he put it. And he would sometimes say, it's hard now to distinguish between what he actually said in certain Night Live sketches of him, but you know, that it wouldn't be prudent to do this or that. And so there's a kind of division in one's mind about politics between, you know, people of vision, right, who, who have principles of some kind or another that they're very good at articulating, and people who are prudent, these people who are just great at solving practical problems. And it seems obvious in a way that that's that's not a, a coherent way of dividing up the way we should think about politics, because as Nathan Tarkov says, I think we quoted in the volume, clearly principles don't, don't apply themselves. And so you need some capacity to get as much as you can of whatever principle you're hoping to advance in the world, given the circumstances that you face. And you know, what kinds of circumstances are those? Maybe your power is pretty limited as a nation, for example, or maybe you're a democratic polity and uh, the people aren't quite ready to go along with something that you'd, you know, you'd like to do. So principles don't apply themselves. And in order to apply them, you need a facility, a skill, a faculty, whatever you want to call it, prudence in order to uh, make principles go, so to speak. And at the same time, prudence doesn't guide itself, right? If prudence is you know, a way of attempting to get something done, well, what, what is that something that's going to guide your practice as a uh, politician, certainly, right, as, as a statesman. And so, you know, th- that volume gets at questions like, I mean, there is an essay on Lincoln, although it's not on this particular matter, about things like, uh, you know, to, to, to what extent was it possible to apply anti-slavery <laughs> principles prior to the outset of the Civil War, and how how does somebody like Lincoln um, try to think through the limits of the 
constitution, the limits of the the public mind or of public opinion, and what he's you know able to do under those circumstances. Questions like that, trying to understand a person like Lincoln, or for that matter, a person like like Frederick Douglass, who's not in a position of uh, governmental leadership, but is nonetheless trying to steer a movement, the abolitionist movement, trying to understand how it can go about accomplishing anti-slavery principles given the circumstances, um, is, for example, the strategy of staying out of politics and, and trying for moral suasion. Is that the best way of going about it? Is it important to join a political party? When is violence justified? Um, in order to advance such principles. And by the way, how do you advance those principles, the atmosphere in which, which many people are, are hostile to Black people, even if they're against slavery? So, mm-hmm. so questions, questions like that, looking at both classical thinkers like Thucydides and more modern thinkers like, like Locke, like Rousseau, like, and, and, and so on, looking at that question of, um, of principle and prudence is what the volume's about. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And this idea that prudence is for applying principles to practice, you know, another translation of this Greek word phronesis uh, that we sometimes see, often translated prudence, but can also be translated as practical wisdom. And so it's sort of the place where practical things in the world, uh, the pragma in Greek, the things, uh, kind of meet wisdom and intellectual virtue. Prudence is an intellectual virtue, according to Aristotle. And in the light of that, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about your views regarding the place of higher education today in inculcating prudence uh, in students. We have a lot of interest in higher education in the practical and in work study and internships and things like this. And clearly there's also a lot of the purely intellectual in higher education, but what can be done to help students put those together and to become not merely educated, but prudent? Thank you. Yeah. Let me say a little bit to get at that question about how I think of liberal education, because I, I think it does have a dimension that that addresses the question that you asked. I think that liberal education is about shaping reasonable people. And what I mean by shaping reasonable people is people who are equipped and also inclined to ground uh, their ideas, to ground their actions, the best arguments, the best evidence that's available to them. And when the evidence available to them isn't adequate to proceed with with humility, um, to proceed with caution, to proceed um, with a sense that one is uncertain and may, insofar as it's possible, continue to investigate even as one is engaging in the world of action as a person has to. That is an emphatically practical education because to ground your thoughts and actions on the best arguments and evidence available to you is not, you know, to develop uh, some some great things you can say at, at cocktail parties, um, uh, Plato or Aristotle, but it's to um, avoid avoidable stupidity, to avoid avoidable blindnesses, to avoid avoidable hubris, excessive self confidence. I mean, I think somebody who who thinks that way necessarily 
you know, for, for example, let's say that um, I'm pursuing some kind of civic engagement work. A, a lot of colleges you know, do, do civic engagement, sometimes in the form of uh, service learning, sometimes um, you know, in broader ways. But when, when you're doing um, civic engagement work, it's not enough just to be fervently dedicated to it, although that helps you get out of bed in the morning. But if, if civic engagement, you know, is in part about actually helping people, you need to ask yourself on the one hand, what principle is going to help me do that? What, what, what's a good society? <laughs> you know, what's human flourishing? These are big questions that, in a way, you need to ask, uh, even if you can't answer them entirely to your satisfaction in order to be of help to, to anybody. At the same time, even once you've developed an idea of what you think human flourishing is or what a good society is, you have to think about how you might make your way in, in that direction, given the particulars of the situation you find yourself in. Uh, what resources do you have? What about the people you're trying to help? Do, do you know them? What are they like? <laughs> or are they prepared to participate in the kind of work that you're hoping to do with them and so on? So I think that when you think of you know, what you're trying to accomplish in, in higher education as um, rounding your thoughts and actions in the best arguments evidence available to you and uh, recognizing when you know, you really don't know something as, as much as you'd like to, that helps a student be prudent. I think it guards them against certain, certain sources of a potential imprudence. So, for example, it's pretty easy at college to, to grab onto some sort of explanation of everything, whether, say, it's Marxism or it's psychoanalysis. And these ways of looking at things can pretty easily become closed circles. Mm -hmm. So with respect to psychoanalysis, right, if you if you say something that the therapist doesn't think is quite right, the therapist can think, well, they're, they're, they're just trying to resist my therapy because of their unconscious motivations. And if you're objecting to Marxism, it's easy in a Marxist framework to dismiss objections as, well, you know, they, they're in the grips of, of bourgeois delusions and they're unlike me, they're incapable of getting outside of it. And so, so pretty soon you're able to sort of fend off um, any kind of objection without thinking too much about it. And you've got th this ready way of, in a way, just analyzing absolutely everything without paying much attention to the particulars of the situation. I think that that liberal education understood in the way that I've described can help um, guard against that, you know, quite natural tendency to want some way of uh, making sense <laughs> um, of, of of the world around us, and there, there's nothing wrong with with indulging that that wish. But I think that liberal education, as I understand it, you know, involves at least avoiding indulging that wish to the extent that you lose your grip on the limitations of your own knowledge. So that brings us, I think, to your most recent book, uh, which was published in 2021, uh, called Let's Be Reasonable, A Conservative Case for Liberal Education, uh, available in paperback now on Amazon. And as you were just saying, uh, you were argue uh, in this book about the importance of shaping reasonable students, about the importance in general of being reasonable. Uh, but I wonder if you could say a little bit about what drove you to write that book. Uh, is it that we're not being sufficiently reasonable today uh, in higher ed? And if that's the case, in what ways are we failing to be reasonable? Well, <laughs> 
let me say a little bit about what what drove me to write the book. But I, the first thing I want to say is that let's be reasonable. Is I mean, it does define an aspiration that I think is is typically unmet, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? That is to say that that people in higher education are not unusual <laughs> in failing to meet that um, aspiration. Um, so you know, w- w- when I say let's be reasonable, I, d- I don't mean you know, learn symbolic logic, avoid logical fallacies, although all those things are important. I I mean, something more like try to treat reason as a kind of authority. Sometimes people who are extremely skilled at reasoning, right, are are skilled mainly at poking holes in the arguments of people whose views they dislike and very bad at turning reason on their own arguments. And we we see these people, right, pundits yelling at each other on TV, for example, or if you ever spent any time on Twitter, you can see a lot of that going on on Twitter, where the problem is not so much that the people in question aren't aren't really intelligent, that they're not in command of logic, um, but instead they're interested in making their side prevail or in winning some kind of glory (laughs) or, for that matter, clicks. Is there any difference between clicks and glory? I'm not sure. But, you know, the, the, the reasonable person, you know, reasonable people say to themselves, you know, let's get serious. Let's stop trying to hawk our wares. Let's stop trying to make our point of view triumph at all costs. Let's stop, you know, trying to puff ourselves up and let's look as, as if they really mattered. <laughs> Again, at the best arguments and evidence we have available to us to work through questions of um, of common interest. So, but why did I write the book? Well, I, I guess, you know, in some sense, it, it was born out of frustration, <laughs> though not necessarily simply with, uh, with unreason at the universities. But as far as the universities are concerned, I'd say I had, I had three different concerns, right? Three negatives and one positives I'll give you, okay? Um, so one negative concerns, let's call it, for the sake of simplicity, the, the campus left. Mm-hmm. And you know that these concerns, I think, will be familiar, certainly familiar to you, probably to a lot of your listeners, and that they have to do with the politicization of colleges and universities, the extent to which if some faculty and also administrators are are really eager to adopt a standpoint in the political arena, but which I think is is quite different from inquiring into questions whose answers aren't yet settled mm-hmm. for us. So that's that's one frustration. Uh, but there's a frustration with conservatives who I think um, in recent years, and you know, not just in recent years, but more and more in recent years, I think have given up on colleges, universities, think that they're, that they're hopelessly, um, in a way, taken over by the left um, in a way that doesn't jibe either with my own experience you know, in my own career or what I'm able to ascertain about what's going on in other places. I think that oftentimes, and there's a cottage industry in this, conservatives present an exaggerated portrait of just how bad things um, at our colleges and universities are. So by analogy, right? Yeah, there's this outfit called Campus Reform, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which can spit five stories a day into your feed about how awful things are at colleges and universities. Indeed, they do so. If you follow them on Twitter, I could start a website called Medical Malpractice, in which I could put many more than five stories a day into your feed. 
about malpractice cases, you know, actually settled for money, let alone your accusations of malpractice would make you afraid to walk into a hospital. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of that kind of, uh, I, I don't think it would be wrong to call it anti-university propaganda out there. And I'd find that to be quite, quite frustrating, even though my criticism will have suggest there's an element of truth um, to these complaints as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, there are the people who are in a way charged with defending liberal education outfits like the American Association of Colleges and Universities, which you know actually have a journal called Liberal Education. But what you get out of there is, is pretty uninspiring. You know, it seems like liberal education, like higher education in general, is, you know, it's, it, it's interdisciplinary and, you know, it's going to prepare you for the global world. At the same time, it's going to get you jobs, 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 will prevent your children from doing the January 6th. And yeah, you know, it's just a grab bag of uh, you know what what would you like us to be <laughs> exactly? And so so I think the frustration about what I consider a, not an absence because there are, as I acknowledge in the book, good defenses of liberal education out there, but a relative paucity of such defenses. And the, the the positive thing is we talked about my education at the University of Chicago. I felt like I, I got a liberal education and it'd be nice to be able to try to inspire others to 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 seek it, to be interested in it, to to attempt to provide it and and so on. I, I mean I think there are actually lots and lots of people at colleges and universities who subscribe to liberal education as I've just described it, which doesn't apply, by the way, merely to people like me who are spend most of our time reading musty old books, but also to, you know, folks in the natural sciences and mathematics who, you know, generally speaking, do regard, I think, themselves as people who are looking to examine the best arguments and evidence available to them in order to draw conclusions about which they ought to be humble until they have enough arguments and evidence to uh, get to a level of certainty that would make them them less humble. I think that there's that element already in college university life sort of all over college and universities. And it's a question of better articulating it and, and tapping into it. Mm-hmm. One of the chapters uh, in your book uses the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement as a case study uh, for some of these ideas. Could you say a little bit about that movement and the way in which you use it in the book? Yeah, I, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, it's, it's still very much still around, still in the news. Yeah, um, goes by BDS for short. And so this is a movement that you can trace its roots back, you know, at least a couple of of decades, maybe back to 2001, when there's a conference on racism in Durban. And alongside that conference, there's a meeting of non-governmental organizations. And there's a a big call to to isolate Israel, the South Africa-like apartheid state. Um, And after that conference in 2002, you already see drives on campus to divest from Israel, simply meaning that, you know, especially at a place like Harvard, you've got a lot of investment money invested. And so you should divest as a way of making a statement that Israel ought not to be tolerated. In 2005, call purportedly from Palestinian civil society went out insisting that boycotting, say, certain businesses that were engaged in work with Israel, divesting, which I just um, described to you, um, sanctions as attempting to get, you know, outfits like the European Union to sanction um, Israel for in various ways, that those ought to be continued until Israel ceases to occupy all Arab lands, until Israel confers um, equal rights on 
Israeli Arabs and until Israel allows all refugees to return. I just want to say a quick word about the meaning of that call. I don't want to get too much into it, but all Arab lands, that means Israel. (laughs) It means that Israel should seek to occupy Israel. That is to say that there should not be a Jewish state in the Middle East. Respecting the equal rights of Israeli Arabs um, sounds about right. Uh, What could be wrong with that, except that BDS has targeted in particular the um, right of return, um, which means that um, Jews can uh, get citizenship Um, in Israel. They are given preferential treatment by a state that is in part devoted to protecting Jews in the aftermath of a Holocaust and being a safe haven. So equal rights for Palestinians means that there shouldn't be such a law of return, um, since it tends to favor, well, it does favor Jewish would-be citizens um, of the state, which again is aimed directly at the character of Israel as a Jewish state in the Middle East. Um, law of return for Palestinians, the same thing. Refugees are defined, I think, as pretty much any descendant of um, folks who either left or were driven out of the area in the 1948 war. And that's that's millions of people. And opening up a right of return would, of that kind, that is for Palestinians, would uh, end the Jewish character of Israel. So BDS is basically a call to boycott, divest, and sanction until Israel is no longer, somehow voluntarily gives up being a Jewish state. So that's that's what it is, and it manifests itself on campus um, in drives to, say, end study abroad programs in Jewish cities, manifests itself in um, attempts, again, to get colleges to divest, get student government associations to demand divestment, manifests itself in Israeli apartheid week, which goes on many campuses, the sole purpose of which is to isolate a particular state. It manifests itself in academic associations like the American Studies Association, which um, issued a statement that would would boycott Israel. There are attempts to get larger associations like the Martin Language Association, the American Historical Association, to practice similar boycotts. So for scholars not of the Middle East to get on record on Middle East policies and to take actions that would have an impact on conference going in Israel, would have an impact on the capacity of Israeli scholars to work in the, in, in their fields. So that's, that's what it's about. And in my book, I try to explain that the movement really emanates from an attempt to turn universities into sites of struggle sites of struggle against Israel and more broadly against American imperialism. So it's part of a larger movement against uh, not just Israel, but, but Western imperialism and various Western crimes. So the idea is to turn the university into a site of, of political struggle. And in the book, I argue why the university, understood as a place in which liberal education is to take place, um, should be concerned about attempts to turn universities into a site of struggle and should should be reluctant to embrace this kind of thing. It is a political movement, and and there's nothing wrong with political movements and doing what political movements do, which is, you know, exaggerating, distorting, pretending that there's something they're not, depending on what audience they're talking to. But all of these things are contrary to the values that um, 
an intellectual community is supposed to practice. So I, I think universities should be should be wary about this. They should be working against it. But at the same time, opposition to the BDS movement has sometimes taken the form of simply trying to squelch these ideas in some ways. So I talk about um, an instance that happened in Brooklyn College in 2013, um, which exhibits both sides of this phenomenon. So an academic department, the political science department, sponsored what was in effect a recruitment event for BDS. And I think uh, critics properly argued that while such events could take place on a campus, an academic department ought not to be lending its sponsorship to such an event. But reaction to it, for example, on the part of New York City councilmen was to say something like, you know, we respect academic freedom, but it sure would be a shame if we took all your money away from you, right? Which seems to me, in a way, you know, fighting anti-university values with more or less anti-university values. In other words, the promise of academic freedom is meaningless if funding is going to be withdrawn from the city college because, you know, uh, legislators don't like the ideas that are being expressed there. I mean, I think we're dealing with a similar phenomenon now with uh, various forms of uh, of state-level legislation, which respond to, I think, a genuine problem in a lot of ways, and a lot of you know, college campuses. Uh, it doesn't take a conservative to concede, as many non-conservatives do, that there is a progressive bias on college campuses. Um, but I worry when the way of responding to that kind of bias is by attempting to stamp out people who are promulgating progressive ideas, not generally speaking, in my view, in such a way as to attempt to indoctrinate students into them. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Very interesting. And this brings us, I think, to your uh, more uh, journalistic work that you've been publishing over the years. Uh, Not only have you written the books that we've been discussing in a number of academic articles, but you've also published essays over the years in the Wall Street Journal, Chronicle of Higher Ed, Inside Higher Ed, The Weekly Standard, and over 250 blog posts for Commentary Magazine. Uh, So I I wanted to turn to some of your uh, more occasional writings toward the end of our uh, time here, just to ask about some of these contemporary events and get your point of view on them. Uh, So for example, last October, actually October of 2021, uh, you wrote an essay called Against Diversity Statements. Uh, Diversity statements are still uh, in the news today. Uh, They're being banned on the state level in certain states. And I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how these diversity statements are used in higher ed, what the problem with them is, and uh, whether you support some of these legislative attempts to ban them. Thanks. Yeah. So diversity statements are a relatively new phenomenon. And you know, the way they come about more or less is that a college or university reasons we've adopted as one of our core values, the idea that, um, you know, diversity is really important. And so all of our employees should, you know, be vetted in a way to see if they're aligned with that value. And so even if you are applying for a position, say, in the College of Engineering at College or University X, you might be asked, and I'm not sure if it's yet the case that you probably will be asked, but it might be. I mean, a lot of colleges and universities now have verge of this kind of statement. You might be asked, you know, to write a short essay on how you're going to um, contribute to the value of diversity on campus. 
sometimes say specify. Tell us how your research is going to do it. Tell us how your teaching is going to do it. Tell us how your service is going to do it. And when you look at the kind of advice that's that's going around about how to craft such a statement, it's clear that at least a lot of people think that you'll be favored if you can demonstrate that you've engaged in some kind of activism in favor of diversity. And diversity understood in a certain way. In other words, you know, if I say in my diversity statement that I think it's important to treat everybody equally, you know, that's not going to be enough. <laughs> um, if I say in my diversity statement that I think, you know, the thought of, um, I don't know, say of Glenn Lowry, <laughs> um, who writes about diversity, is is really compelling and that we, we need to make sure that we're treating everybody, you know, in a fair way. It seems like that's the kind of thing where, you know, you're going to get, well, thanks, next. Right. And um, you, you've got that both at the level of um, hiring and increasingly um, in the areas of promotion and tenure. So basically what's going on is that you've got a request to provide you know, an essay or a statement that, at least in my view, and I'm, I'm not alone in this, is asking you to, in effect, pledge allegiance to a relatively narrow and progressive understanding of diversity, equity, inclusion, and all the rest of that. And that creates at least two kinds of problems, right? One problem is that, so there there is a book that was written a while back by Neil Gross called something like, Why Are Professors Liberal and Why Do Conservatives Care? And one of the arguments he made in that book is that it's not necessarily discrimination against conservatives that um, explains why they're relatively few, and there are relatively few conservatives on college university faculties. He says instead, you know, college universities are sort of, I forget how he puts it, but let's say left tight in the same way that say nursing is gender typed. You might think as a guy, well, maybe I shouldn't get into nursing because it seems like like it's mostly women who are involved in that profession. Or maybe I shouldn't get involved in elementary school teaching, but it seems like it's mostly women who are doing that kind of thing. And he says, similarly, a conservative might look at what's going on and say, maybe I shouldn't get involved in scholarship or teaching at the university level because it seems like it's 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 only progressives who are there who are welcome there. And diversity statements just contribute to this perception of what colleges and universities are are like. So I think that that's one um, big problem with them. And I think the other big problem with them is that they they do discourage any kind of discussion of the university's goals. So I, I say in my book, for example, even though I have a certain vision of liberal education, that that, that doesn't mean that I wouldn't you know, hire a Marxist <laughs> or a Freudian on the faculty, even though I suspect their ideas don't really jibe my idea of higher education. We need to be open to you know, criticism, debate about, you know, even if we decide we're going to adopt diversity, equity, and inclusion as a core value, we need to be open to discussion about what those things are. And I think it really narrows the scope, even if we're, that's the kind of work we want to do, of, of how well we're going to be able to do that kind of work. I think I would prefer that they get addressed at the level of the university. That is to say that, you know, traditionally boards of, of, uh, boards of private colleges and, you know, boards of governors or boards of regions of public university have been able to exercise power um, but, you know, by, by appointing presidents, right, who, you know, in their view, are going to be able to keep the institution to its mission, more or less. And so, you know, I'd prefer that 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 things like like hiring practices get handled that way. But I, I think nonetheless, I mean, I think that that legislature's 
they're justified in doing it. That is to say that, you know, there, there is a, a way in which these statements, um, they encourage discrimination. <laughs> they're a fig leaf potentially for discrimination, although I agree with Neil Gross that I don't think that um, discrimination is the primary reason we don't see conservatives on campus. You know, I think that you know, when, you, when you poll both liberal and conservative academics about their sort of willingness to discriminate, like how much of a difference would ideology make to you in deciding whether to provide research funding to a project or whether to hire somebody, you know, non-trivial minorities, those people, they say, yeah, actually would make a difference. I would be willing to discriminate, um, as it's put. And th- those diversity statements provide a, a means of doing it. So I think it's it's a, it's a big problem. And I think, you know, th- th- that kind of intervention being conducted by state legislatures certainly bothers me a good deal less than some other kinds of, of interventions, even though, again, I prefer that be handled through more traditional means. I think that that board of governor restraint, board of trustee restraint, it's a good tradition that's protective of academic freedom on campus. So so the less that we can uh, uh, get away from that tradition, the better, in my view. Very good. So I just have one more question for you, uh, Jonathan, which I, I think might bring together a few of the themes that we've been discussing today, although perhaps in a sort of funny way. You teach at Ursinus College a course in the uh, Department of Politics called What is Love? Uh, And I wonder if you can say a little bit about what that course is for and and what you hope students learn uh, in a course called What is Love uh, in college? What is the purpose of a course like that? Yeah. So, I mean, let me begin by saying you mentioned inspirational teachers. And, you know, one person I left out because I didn't actually study with him is Leon Cass, who is teaching on the Committee on Social Thought at the time, but is also a really distinguished um, undergraduate teacher. And uh, my, my wife, Anna, took courses with Leon Cass and uh, in particular took a course that um, he taught with, with Amy Cass, uh, which is a course, course, I think it was called Courtship. Right. And and the idea of that course seemed to be that one of the most important decisions that we can make in our lives is um, who we're going to spend the, the rest of them with, assuming that marriage is something that we, we want to do, which is, I think, a question that, that is taken up in, in that course and certainly be taken up in, in mind. So, um, you know, what is love is, is meant to inspire in students reflection on um, a matter that is of fundamental importance, uh, not just to students, but even to us old non-students too. And we talked, as you said, this kind of brings us back to the beginning of the conversation. You know, what, what can you get <laughs> out of reading you know, great books? And it seems to me that, and students have sometimes you know, told me as much after taking the course, that you find that you know even matters that you sometimes think of as well, it can't possibly help to think about this. You know, it's too much about spontaneity and feeling and so on and so forth that there are rich resources <laughs> for thinking about it in such a way that um, your life, again, in one of the most fundamental matters, you know, might just get better. <laughs> so so that's the purpose of the course. And you know, in it, I, I acquaint them with, um, you know, works like, like like Plato's Symposium, um, some of Rousseau's writings on love, um, C.S. Lewis um, on love and friendship, and some more contemporary works as well. Um, the excuse for 
um, having a political politics department. I, my colleagues are very kind. I'm not sure if this this was fully justified, but but it is a political issue. So you know what what you think about love. You know maybe if you're a certain kind of feminist, it's a trap, right, of some kind or another. What's the relationship between love? Um, and equality, and and what does living in a democratic political culture um, have to do um, with how we we pursue love, and whether we're interested um, in marriage, and if we are interested in marriage, what does marriage mean, and how, if at all, is connected to child rearing? Um, these are questions I think that that anybody can recognize as as a question that's 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 really important to them. You know, whereas students are certainly interested in, uh, you know, I, I also do, of course, we're talking about statesmanship on Lincoln, Douglas, and democratic statesmanship. They're, they're sure interested in that, but, you know, they're probably not going to become statespeople, um, but they've probably already fallen in love. Um, so so I think that that, that, that course is, is an opportunity um, to help them see um, how they can get something out of reflecting on uh, on older texts, but more broadly, just to get something out of out of reflecting as such. <laughs> that is to say, I mean, the case of love in my book, I don't want to discourage sales, but my book, uh, let's be honest, it's pretty unerotic in a lot of ways, because I really do focus on the aspect of liberal education that, that helps you not be stupid. <laughs> and of course, there, there, there is a, a side of liberal education that um, that emphasizes um, its eroticism, right? Socrates is a, is a really um, erotic figure. Mm-hmm. But of course, uh, his eroticism doesn't mean that um, <laughs> that that his work doesn't have to do have something to do with thinking. So this is an opportunity to also uh, make thinking sexy. That's a wonderful place to leave uh, the conversation. Jonathan Marks, thank you so much for joining us uh, this week on IRED Now. Uh, we hope to have you back again sometime. Thank you, Brad. This was fun. Higher Ed Now is a production of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work and the pivotal issues of higher education, visit goacta.org, or you can email us at info at goacta.org. If you enjoy Higher Ed Now, you can subscribe and leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I'm Doug Spry. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, take care of yourselves, and we'll share more episodes with you soon.